I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother Jonah. We're two siblings who love to talk about our childhood and nostalgia and how it shaped us into the people we are today. Who are chill but classy, if I do say so myself. Welcome to How Did We Get Weird? Jonah, you're telling me about how you just went to an outdoor concert. You know, you took me to my first outdoor and maybe my first ever concert, which was actually Lilith Fair. Yes, I did. I took you to Lilith Fair. We were in high school. I won tickets off the radio. Yes, which was so crazy. I remember yeah. being so impressed by that. Yeah, I would just, you know, got on the landline, called. I was like, whatever number caller. And it was a Blossom Music Center uh, outside of Cleveland. And the one takeaway I have from this show is that I had my first ever cappuccino at Lilith Fair. Yeah, that was a huge first for you. It was like, and whenever I tell this story to people, I'm like, Jonah had his first. And people always think I'm going to say kiss, but I always say cappuccino. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember. I mean, I don't know how old we were. I was old enough to drive at this. I was probably like 16. Yeah. You were yeah, probably like maybe 14. Si- yeah. I don't know. Somewhere around that. And yeah, I remember being at the venue and I remember they had like the vending machine, like coffee machines and you being like, like, Joan, you want a cappuccino? I remember being like, what's that? <laughs> yeah. Getting it. And it was like one of those really sugary ones. And I was like a teenager. So I thought it was great. It probably tasted nothing like coffee. Well, it was also just very cool. Like I, I remember it was so fun going to that concert with you because, you know, you weren't like a huge Lilith Fair person. It was more artists that I was, I was always very into, um, Tori Amos was my first CD and I was always into her and like Sarah McLaughlin. So, and Fiona Apple, I think was there for, for me, it was truly heaven. And it was cool to walk around with my kind of punk brother 
but it's like a little give and take on each end because like you know you got to try cappuccinos so like we both got a lot out of yeah yeah the experience yeah i remember victoria williams played that was victoria really cool williams was there that was really cool yeah yeah and yeah i'll never forget that cappuccino so yeah well this is a good segue into our guest today our guest today is also a musician best known for working against me and Laura Jane Grace and the Devouring Mothers. And she put out a great solo album in 2020 called Stay Alive um, that you should check out. And let's introduce Laura Jane Grace. Hey, Laura. Hey, Laura. Hey, Jonah. Hey, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. I just interviewed Laura earlier this week. So I feel like we spent a lot of time on Zoom together. So it's this is great. Connecting. It's good connecting. I've, I've missed you, you know? I know. I missed you as well. So, Laura, did you ever make it out to Lilith Fair? First of all, can I say that that story is incredible? Um, <laughs> you were literally a Jonathan Richmond song that has never been written. <laughs> I never made it to Lilith Fair, but I will say, as I was listening to that story, I wanted to ask, did Ani DeFranco play? Because I used to be a huge, huge, massive Ani DeFranco fan. I don't remember her playing, but she may have. I don't think she was there. You know how they would kind of... Um, there would be different people at each one. And I don't think she was there. See, what was Lilith Fair like a touring fair a la Warp Tour? Is that the way it worked? Because I was I I was maybe a little younger at the time where I don't I'm not even sure my parents would have let me go if it came to South Florida. Yeah, it was it was sort of like it, but it was at like it didn't have like the multiple stages. Like so it right. felt like so if if but it felt like they had booths and stuff. It was Sarah McLaughlin's thing right like she was kind of running it I think and so she was at every show which is huge for me and then like Tori Amos would be at some of them like I bet like Alanis Morissette was at some of them it was just like dependent on like what city you were in like which musicians went to which ones but hopefully they had cappuccino machines at all of them but can I go ahead and and, and humiliate myself just to get that out of the way early sure. on sure please I, I used to have this like um deeply held secret teenage fantasy that I would like meet my soulmate when I heard the song In the Arms of the Angel by <laughs> That's so sweet. <laughs> I thought it would be like like in a movie. I used to be really, really into rom-coms. I would like walk into a room and it would start playing and there'd be a person and we'd connect and that'd be it. Um, and this was at an era, as we were talking about uh, before we started recording, uh, referencing the shirt I'm wearing, I was still punk as fuck back then. I was I was like wearing an Osiratin shirt when I was 14 years old, imagining that magic moment. Yeah, we should make clear that Laura is wearing a crust punk Os Rotten shirt, um, which is a record that I we were talking about before we started taping, which is a record that I definitely owned as a teenager as well, that that everyone kind of owned. Well, I would, <laughs> maybe wouldn't Vanessa say everyone. Know. I was kind of like, us who? <laughs> <laughs> to, be, to be honest, I don't know I don't know who they are. But yeah, Lil's Fair was from 97 to 99, and it was Sarah McLaughlin's thing. And I guess they uh, redid it in 2010 as well. Oh, I missed the reboot. How is how's that possible? I guess that was the year I got on SNL. Yeah. I guess it wasn't very successful too, right? I'm guessing. It was only one year. Yeah. yeah. It says that it was mixed results. Several dates were canceled and many performers backed out. And in 2011, Sarah McLaughlin said the little concept was no longer being considered due to changing audience views and expectations. I wonder why that is because it feels like just the sweetest... Maybe that's me being like putting something on there that isn't there. But like, I just feel like it was like the coolest, sweetest women just having a blast. Maybe that's like the more political way of saying organizing a festival is a thankless job and we actually don't want to do yes. this. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's probably logistically really tough. Yeah. So much work. I feel like Jonah, I remember visiting you once at like the AP magazine 
music festival in Cleveland. And like, I was trying to hang out with you and you were like, uh, I have to go run it. There's some musician had to like talk to you and it was, do you know what I'm talking about? I think, oh yeah, this is an amazing story. Laura, I think you were there also. I think I was, I was going to say, was that the the rock and roll? It was was behind the rock call. It was the first one. I think you and Vanessa maybe met for the first time there. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the show's show's about to start. I was just telling, actually telling my wife this story because I just read Joe Perry's biography and from Aerosmith and someone Spoiler I knew from alert. Cleveland who worked at the Rock Hall was like, Joe Perry wants to see you right now. And I was like, what? And they were like, <laughs> Joe Perry wants to see you. And it was like, like, seriously, like the five minutes before the show started. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So I'm like running. I run into the Rock Hall and it's like, I'm walking through like this office in the Rock Hall of Fame and it's like, Slash is sitting there. Like, it's like all of these like super iconic musicians and I'm, I go in and Joe Perry is sitting at this desk with his feet up and he has a shirt that's like basically like unbuttoned, like maybe like one button at the bottom is done. Like his legs up on this desk, he's with his manager and he's writing this speech to give some kind of award to Slash. And he's like, <laughs> what do you think about this speech? And it's like totally illegible. Like I can't, re- and I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it has to be this long. I don't remember what I'm saying, but I'm trying to talk to him about this speech. And the whole time I'm like, this is insane. And he's like, do you want to take this and look at it? And like, I'm like, yes. Oh my gosh. I want this like handwritten Joe Perry speech. So bad. And his manager's like, no, Joe, no one can read that. Like you should hold on to it. So we talk about the speech and yeah. And then, you know, at some point he came out and gave this award to slash and I don't, you know, I don't really remember a lot of the specifics of it, but yeah, I had this meeting with Joe Perry. He called you in to yeah. help. With the speech. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Joe Perry. They were, I was like, how does Joe Perry know who I am? I'm, I don't know. I don't know how, how it happened. But that was like one of my cool, coolest rock and roll moments, probably. I can picture him like pacing around in the dressing room. Like, what do I do? What I need Jonah. I need Jonah <laughs> now. <laughs> Give me Jonah. I'm fucking Joe Perry. You bring me Jonah Bear. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. It's totally, it's totally wild. I met Slash that morning. That was You met Slash time. that morning? Yeah, yeah. Oh. It was like rock and roll dream come true for me. That was my moment of like meeting Slash. What happened? Well, he played with Joan Jett and they right. sat that morning right. and I played a song with Joan Jett that night. So I was like side stage with my daughter, Evelyn, and got to watch Slash and Joan Jett uh, sound check Starfucker by the Rolling Stones. And it was incredible. And he immediately came off stage after sound checking and I went up and I introduced himself, but I was so tongue tied. I introduced myself as my daughter and <laughs> introduced my daughter as me. And he's just like, he's like, okay. And like, walks away. <laughs> just, like, did not, did not care. But I remember also Vanessa when meeting you and Adam was there who plays drums in against me. And I remember like me and Adam, we trade like in puns, like it's a currency between us. So it's like normal part for the course. But I remember he was like really laying into puns with you. <laughs> yeah, I kind of remember this. And I remember thinking like, 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 A, I was like, please stop doing that. Please stop doing that. But then also like being like, I wonder if that's like something that happens for her often where like people <laughs> come up just try to be really funny and tell like all their best material jokes and stuff like that. Um, but I remember that moment. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so funny that I was going to bring up, I was just Googling his name and I, I didn't find it, but do you remember the singer of um, Smashing Pumpkins was being, was give, I think he was introducing Joan Jett. Joan Jett was being honored. And I think that he was maybe either introducing her or he was getting his own award. 
He was getting his own award because I introduced Joan Jett that night. Oh, oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes. And you did a great introduction, Laura. And I do apologize. <laughs> but so, memorable. So he, it was very memorable. Remember when you said the thing about this? And I remember he was getting his own award. And Jonah and I kept, I think you were working or something, Jonah, but like we kept texting each other like kind of puns about um, how he was talking for such a long time. We're like, we were like, I hope he finishes this speech tonight, tonight. And then like we were texting each other stuff like seems like he's been talking since 1979 <laughs> and, um, and we thought it was so funny and so I was just thinking about your day Jonah and also yours Laura like what a day it started with you know started with these rock icons and then ended with Jonah and I at least for us Jonah and I texting these puns about <laughs> making fun of Smashing Pumpkins who one of my fave bands of all time, I would say, but, but he kind of opens him up as a tar- himself up as a target for it. Something about yes. his like approach to who he is, it, it makes him ripe for that. And I say that also as like a supreme fan of Smashing Pumpkins. I love the Smashing Pumpkins, and I love Gish, and I love Siamese Dream. I, mean, I, I listened to a podcast with him recently. It was the best advice podcast. And I was getting so frustrated because like uh, Kim, who does the podcast, was like setting him up in a way of like, so is there anyone else who you'd like to thank from your career for helping you out along the way? And it's like, can you just say Butch Vig? He made fucking Gish with you. He made Siamese Dream. He was the producer. Give him some credit for being involved in this. And he was just like, would not do it. And I was, I was like, God damn it, Billy. You deserve the puns. <laughs> Didn't he also announce that they were like going on tour and they were like, what? Or they were getting back together or something. And the rest of the band was like, since when or something? There was something like that that happened. Yeah. And then like Darcy, who was the bass player, the original bass player, like showed all the screenshots from their text messages. And I felt for him then because like, I honestly identified with what he was trying to stress to her of like, hey, we haven't played together in a decade and right. let's do an arena tour. Uh, it, you know, are you sure you're up for it? You haven't been on stage in over a decade. Like I could understand his positioning, but also I, I, I laughed at it too. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we really got him that night. With our puns. <laughs> So, uh, and, and then just to take a one step back, you mentioned Andre Franco, obviously, in, in relation to, to Lilith Fair. Was, did you ever see her at any point when you were younger or any point in your life? Not when I was younger, but in, I think it was 2017 or 2018, I did the Cindy Lauper Christmas Benefit in New York, and she was one of the guests as well. So, got to like hang out with her a little bit backstage and see her, her play, perform that evening, which was really cool. I, I don't know. Immediately brought me back uh, to the day. That's so cool. Vanessa loves Cindy Lauper. I got to meet Cindy Lauper once because she was on Seth Meyers show and I was back. That was really close to our studio for SNL. And it was like a weekday, like we were rehearsing or something. And someone was like, Cindy Lauper's here. And I was like, can I meet her? And they were like, yeah, sure. And they let me go into her dressing room. And she had one of those like sheet masks on, you know, so like you couldn't see her face really like a like a skincare mask. So you couldn't really see her face. And she was just sort of like talking. Like I was so excited. Like I was like starting to like tear up. I was so excited to meet her. And she was just kind of like filling me in on like her day a little or something. And then she was like, she was like, do you you want me to sign? And she had like a CD that she signed for me, which I still have, obviously. Um, And she was just like very sweet and kind of like getting ready. Oh, this is the other thing I remember is that, and I don't think that this is outing her in any way, because I think it's kind of assumed, but she, it was like the sheet 
sheet mask and then like some pink hair and stuff. But then I remember looking at this table and there were just so many pink hair extensions, <laughs> like just pink. And it was just like exactly what you'd want from her because she's just fun, you know? A hundred percent. I actually like uh, I, I did a deep dive on her reality TV show before going into the show event with her. And there was like a day of rehearsal before the actual event. But so I like ended up like watching all the episodes of the reality TV show, not knowing that she had one even. And I didn't know that. It's amazing. Check it out. Um, I got it. Yeah. And and went into it like with that feeling of having just watched someone on screen. So, of course, I, I know them like it was kind of like disarmed a little bit for me, if you will. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so but but also then at the same time, once I was in the moment, became extremely self-conscious. I was like, holy shit, that's fucking Cindy Lauper. Uh, but she she referred to me. She called me Queeque. She gave me the nickname of Queeque because of my I guess my all black tattooed arm. Uh, but instead of being Laura Jane, I was Queeque to her through the whole um, rehearsal process. Uh, but it was we got to do the Goonies theme song together. It was really cool. Wow. wow. Nice. That's so cool to get to do something so nostalgic with someone who that you grew up with. Like, that's very cool. Well, you'd like forget even where you're like, she was like as famous as Michael Jackson back in the day. Like, oh, she yeah. Held that rank, which is just it's wild. Yeah. Was she on the remember we had that mini record of We Are the World? She was on that, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. She was definitely. We used to listen to that so much. We had like a forty-five of We Are the World that was just on constant <laughs> rotation, which is responsible for the best GIF of all time, which is that GIF of Bob Dylan like uncomfortably looking at everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the world. Like, how did I get here? How did I let my manager talk me into this? <laughs> I actually haven't seen the GIF, but I'm gonna a- 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 like, I have definitely to look, look at it, it up. Too. Yeah. Well, we're gonna take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with Laura Jane Grace. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. 
but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. So, Laura, we asked you to come in with a nostalgic topic that you'd like to discuss. And you had an amazing pick, which is G.I. Joe. So G.I. Joe action figures, were they a fave of yours? They were my favorite toy by far. I loved G.I. Joes and I spent an abnormal amount of time playing with G.I. Joes when I was a kid. Uh, For context, I grew up in a military family, so it fell in line with that. Like, I wanted to play with Barbies. I was not allowed to play with Barbies. It w- there was like a couple weird moments where I had gotten caught playing with like neighborhood friends with Barbies. And it was definitely like, I understood like, that's weird. Don't do that. Um, but at the same time, like Barbies didn't have the articulation. Like you couldn't bend their their knees and their hands the same way. And I wanted realism. So G.I. Joe's had the most articulation out of any action figure toy, uh, specifically like the late 80s, early 90s uh, G.I. Joe line. And I really feel like also G.I. Joe were smart in that they, they, they had the album cycle model. Like every year they released their new line of characters and all the characters were really sought out, fleshed out. Like you had their dog tag ID card on the back of it that gave you like their name, their, their code name, their, their like, you know, civilian name, um, their backstory, the, where they were from and like really in-depth storylines that you would then jump off into when reading the comic books. But I was not about playing war. I was about like acting out real life scenarios, you know, like playing with them as people, you know, not soldiers. So the civilian life of G.I. Joe. What would be an example of a real life situation that your G.I. Joes would be in? Well, we would like me and my friend, uh, Richard, who lived next door, we would like take books and lay them out on the floor as if a floor plan for a house, like each each book would that be, makes sense and we would imagine the walls and the roof but you know you're, you're reaching out in any ways and we had whatever like items that we would set up as furniture and decorate the whole house and then they would live their lives like i had a a, <laughs> a metal <laughs> jaguar e-type model that a gi joe fit in perfectly so that was the car it was a bitchin fucking two-seater convertible that they would drive around the room in and, you know, like there'd be the two houses. My friends, G.I. Joe's had their house and I had my house with my G.I. Joe's. We'd divide up the characters and there would always be some drama point that would happen that, you know, the obstacle that had to be overcome for the day, whatever the storyline was. But it wasn't like uh, we're lining up on the battlefield, get your guns, we're shooting each other. It was like, uh, like, there's the problem. And then there's also the romance arc of like these two characters are getting it on, you know, um, and exploring sexuality through G.I. Joe's. Wow. That's incredible. That's really interesting. I mean, like, were you into the cartoon as well? Or were you more into like creating your own kind of scenarios with the, with your action figures and your imagination? It was more the own scenarios. Like it, living overseas specifically, my dad was stationed um, in Naples, Italy, worked for NATO. Like there was only the one television channel, Armed Forces Network. So like 
maybe wow. played G.I. Joe every once in a while, but not in any kind of regular programming that I could watch it. But I did read the comic books and the comic books had great storylines. And I guess like in part, I chose this not only because of like, okay, what makes you weird? And like, what what is nostalgic for me? But also there's a new G.I. Joe movie coming out, the Snake Eyes movie. And there's been two previous G.I. Joe movies. And I like am always completely let down by them because they do no justice to those original storylines and to the rich characters that were developed on the dog tags on the back of the boxes. And I mean, these are like vibrant characters that I can go through and still talk about today as a 40-year-old with toys I was playing with when I was eight years old. You know, there was Tunnel Rat. Tunnel Rat was like, obviously he explored the tunnels and stuff, but he had bell bottoms and fucking these bitchin' brown boots, Tunnel Rat, and then like a, a head wrap, you know, and like was smaller than the other characters. Or there was like Roadblock or Salvo. Salvo had a bald head and had this brown t-shirt that said the right of might. And then there was like the Iron Grenadiers and the Bats and the B-A-T's. I forget what that stood for. But then Storm Shadow and and Snake Eyes and Jinx, those were the three ninjas. But Jinx was one <laughs> of the, the few female characters. There was Jinx, there was the Baroness, and there was Lady Jane, and there was maybe one or two others. Um, but so the like there was always the female characters in play, you know, like it wasn't just about like a boys club of GI Joes. I wasn't interested in that. Were you into, um, I remember at this around the same time I was, there was that cartoon mask. I had the mask characters and they had good articulation as well. They were like about half scale. Right. Masks were more about the vehicles. The vehicles like transformed in some way with them, but they were cool vehicles. Like I remember there was like an SUV one that was maybe like a Bronco style SUV and the character looked like my dad physically, like had a mustache <laughs> and black hair. And I was like, that's so cool. My dad is a mask character. <laughs> Um, but, but they were too small and they were like the plastic they were made out of something about it was off to me where I was like, GI Joes are so real. Like they felt very as close to, to, to it. Wow. Wow. Were you into music at this point or was this even, this is sort of like pre, pre that? I, I was very into music and I guess in a lot of ways we were soundtracking movies in our little imaginary world because that was always a part of it. And I would put on like the Tim Burton Batman soundtrack. I had that on cassette and we would just play that on loop. So it wasn't lyrics that were happening in the background. It was just that dramatic like dun, 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 I don't want to get you in trouble with publishing here or anything like that. <laughs> you know, it was like that Danny Elfman music playing the whole time. Just me and my friend eight years old in my bedroom with the door shut trying to keep my brother out so we could really focus on the plot and the storyline that was happening with our GSA. Well, you were scoring your own play. Like, that's so cool that you were scoring it. Like, you know, that's the right thing to play, you know, adding emotion, adding intensity to the scenes. It was, and it got emotional too. Like we would sometimes, the storylines would get so out of control that me and my friend would like come to blows. And maybe there was like a little sexual tension at a really young age happening there or something too. But like, I don't know. It was like passionate, you know, like we would spend hours hours playing G.I. Joe. To back up, it's funny that you were talking about wanting to play with Barbies, but playing with G.I. Joes, and obviously they had better articulation. But we found out that the coining of the term action figure came from G.I. Joes because Barbies and stuff were considered dolls. And so they didn't want to be selling dolls to boys. So they started, that's how the, the term action figure came about. And that's why G.I. Joes and other kind of like male dolls are called action figures now. Which makes total sense. And originally the G.I. Joes were the size of Barbies as well. And I remember that too, where like 
you know, at the at the time that I had those experiences playing with Barbie, I was probably like second grade or something like that, right? And when I was trying to play with Barbies with my friends, in response to that, my parents got me um, Dukes of Hazard dolls, which were the same size as the Barbies. They were just, you know, the like you, you uh, they them not knowing that I would grow up to eventually come out as transgender. They did not know, like, I don't want to be playing with these fucking boy toys. I want to be playing with Barbies, you know, like right. Um, but so that was, they first tried with that, but those again, I'm sure were maybe a little too close to like, you're playing with dolls. So the action figure, uh, stigma or whatever, however you want to put it, like that was more acceptable, but oh, if only those little tiny GI Joes had clothes, you could take off too, like outfits, right. and changeability, that would have been that much more fun, you know? Totally. Cause that was interesting. The GI Joes were like three and a half inches or so. they were like really tiny, right? Yeah, they were smaller. Yeah, but it, but they were durable compared to other toys like of the time. You know, like I feel like I like I never got that into Transformers. I never got that into GoBots or anything like that. And there were other action figures that were would be set in poses. Like you couldn't move their arms from some. You couldn't make them love. You couldn't make them hug right. each other. You know, oh, you yeah. like they couldn't express emotion in the same way. Totally. Do you remember like a point? where you kind of stopped playing with with G.I. Joe's and like what was the kind of the thing that replaced that for you? We moved back to the U.S. My parents divorced right when I was starting out in the fifth grade. So that was a big move moving from Italy to Florida, right? And I think I packed my G.I. Joe's in a carry-on and brought them with me, but it was clear to me once I got to a public school in South Florida that the other kids at that age, they were not playing with toys. They were not playing with action figures and certainly not my weird-ass plot lines that I was into pursuing, right? Me and my friend who are doing this, like, you know, we are weird kids. We are like, growing up on army bases. He was a British kid. Like, his, his dad was, like, British services and, you know, we're in this extraordinary situation. So we had that bond between us, but it came back and discovered that. But then also, also, G.I. Joe really muddled their characters. They started kind of like recycling them where it became not, here's this new guy or here's this new figure with this story. It was like, we're going to redo this old figure, but this time they'll be in a water suit or this time they're in a neon suit. You know, like it was just kind of like, a, a let's sell you the same thing twice. And they kind yeah. of fell out of that like album cycle type release. Like it was such a big deal because... The back of the card, the case or, or the packaging, you know, it not only had that dog tag like information card, it had a picture of all the characters that were the new ones for that year, in addition to the last year's one. And they were really cool drawings. You know, they're like the comic book style drawings of these new characters. They got you excited about it. And in really thinking about it now, I'm like, that was the same as album art. You're just looking at this cool artwork on the back of something and having this, you know, multimedia experience of you got a figure, you got a story, you got some cool art, you know, all for like, what was a G.I. Joe, like six, seven bucks or something like easily convince your parents who are divorcing, who want to buy you this <laughs> G.I. Joe at the store. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Like when you, I, I feel like that moment when you sort of have to outgrow a toy or something like that. And when for multiple reasons, like it's not what it used to be. And also you're not who you, you used to be. I feel so I had like that. What you were just saying, Laura had made me have such a visceral memory of when I was like in fifth grade, there were these things in, in like elementary school, they were called like, this is not a great name, but like the, there were these outfits by this brand called tickle me that it's very hard to find. They're called something else on 
I, I found them called anyways. The point is it would be like stretch pants that had like a ton of different color polka dots on them and then a matching sweatshirt that would have like some of those polka dots plus bows and like a lot it just like a very like involved sweatshirt with a lot of bows and like glitter and whatever on it and and then stretch pants that kind of coordinated and I remember being in fifth grade and being in the cafeteria and I was wearing one of these outfits and I had probably gotten it for my birthday when I was in fourth grade or something or third grade and I remember like the pants were like a little short on me. And I remember going up to like get my lunch and being like, what the fuck am I wearing? Like, I remember just being like, why am I dressed like this? Like I'm in fifth grade and I'm wearing fucking insane stretch pants and like this sweatshirt that has bows all over it. Like, I remember just being so mortified and being like, I have to go home and get out of this outfit. But it was like something that had been like my friend Julie had literally every version of these out. Like it was like these outfits were the coolest outfits, like even just like a year ago. But then all of the sudden being in fifth grade and wearing this outfit, I was just like, I have to go home. Like, I don't think I can get through the rest of the school day in this insane fucking stupid outfit. Like, it's just funny when you, something that you love. And by the way, I I don't think, I I don't know that I could say that I love these outfits as much as you love G.I. Joe. These were just, you know, kind of insane outfits. But it's this, it's like, you just realize like you can't have this thing anymore or, or, yeah. Sure. Well, and and it is that age too, because that coincided like having to give up G.I. Joe's for me coincided with certain fashion changes that happened too. Like I'm pretty sure that at that time I was still, when I initially moved back to Florida, uh, I was still wearing jam. Oh, all these kids here are wearing body glove shirts and Air Jordans. And I have on a United Color of Colors of Benetton shirt right now. I do not fit in. But wait, what were jams? They were like kind of like what you're describing, where except it wasn't a matching top. They were like hyper colored shorts, but they weren't denim. They were like a specific material that it was a fashion trend, you know. <laughs> and they were like not. Sh- they like probably went down to just above the knee or something like that. There was a length to them that made them specific, and I don't think they necessarily had pockets, but definitely my mom would sew her own for me like it and wow. I then of like I need to buy clothes from a store but this is making me realize actually that uh, my separation from GI Joe actually lasted decades where there were the couple soldiers that I had on held on to in like my footlocker for years and years and years tunnel rat being one of them you know but so I held on to these GI Joes until I was like 32 and when I came out as trans I gave them a area in my backyard I was living in Florida like dug up the earth put them into the ground said goodbye to them and and was like this is part of my transition is letting go of my GI Joes I need to say goodbye to these old friends and they need to go in the ground wow how did that idea come about that was just part of the well a lot of it kind of even coincided with starting to work on a book where I I literally had a footlocker that was filled with journals and filled with like, you know, those nostalgic things that I've held on to since childhood where there was like a couple baseball cards. I gave my baseball cards to James uh, for, cause he had a son. I was like, you should have 
these. Give these to your kid when they're older. I don't need these baseball cards. Like the, cause it felt like these were those things that I was given as a kid because I was trying to be reinforced into male stereotypes of you need to be into baseball and you need to play with GI Joes. You can't play with dolls. You can't play with Barbies. These are what you're into. But then I still found my way, own ways to express myself through them. And then I can see how they translated into things I still love, like record collecting, you know, baseball cards and record collecting, very similar. Um, but there was that moment where I was like, I need to get rid of all these things. And they're kind of holding me back emotionally. And the GI Joes, they're there with that. And they, you know, I, cause I, as a kid, I had like anxiety issues too of like how I would leave my GI Joes set up, you know, like we would have those house, houses built out of books and things. And sometimes the storylines would continue for days. And I, I couldn't go to bed at night if a G.I. Joe was left in an uncomfortable position. They needed to be in a sleeping position as well. Because I felt like this was pre-Toy Story days, but I felt like it was similar where they had to assume the position as soon, as soon as you were in the room. So if they had like a foot sticking up in the air, I knew that they'd be uncomfortable. Yeah, that's funny because that's how I am now still yeah. about my records. I'm like, what's the temperature of this room? Like, did, it, did the cat get in there? Like, is something going to happen? It's like, I still have those worries. It's really interesting too that you were playing with all these very like gendered male things and that you were able like that you were able to take from them like what was important to you and still really enjoy playing with them and and get out of them like and that they are like really meaningful things to you. And it's why I really respect toys and I've always had the attitude as a parent myself of like if I I like going down the toy aisle still as a parent and if my daughter ever wants an action figure or any kind of toy I'm like yeah let's get it let's play with toys because i i they i do attribute it to like helping me develop my imagination and just being you know things you can project a world onto yeah totally now i just wanted to go back to when you were talking about like what you were wearing laura because jonah in middle school do you remember what you used to wear <laughs> I, uh, I mean i wore jinkos for sure well wait that was in high school but in middle school you and your friends were very into designer brands <laughs> I don't know oh yeah i was this. very into gerbo <laughs> Gerbo. Yeah. Gerbo I had like, a friend who had Gerbo jeans and I was like, I, I need these jeans. Um, <laughs> you had like a lot of guests and Gerbo stuff. So you'd wear like, like I remember I started wearing one of your outfits years later that was like, it was like a red like silk t-shirt that was like Gerbo with white Gerbo <laughs> jean shorts. That was your outfit. You had like a lot of, like I just remember with you and mom going to like, Dillard's or whatever. Marshall, Marshall's was kind of our spot. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they'd always have discount gerbeau. And you'd be like, <laughs> I have to get... It was so strange, but just like sixth or seventh grade. I think it was seventh grade because I feel like I was in period. fifth grade. We were in, the same, we were in the same school that year. I was in fifth grade. You were in seventh grade. And you were just like always like designers were so huge to you and your friends. <laughs> and you guys... And it was like, yeah, like the jeans had to be gerbeau. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Jonathan Richmond's song, Gerbo Jeans. I know. With the Lilith Fair. That's incredible. I know. I forgot about that. Yeah, that was a short. And I remember mom had a pair of guest jeans that I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. These are in my house. I remember wearing them and someone being like, the guest on these jeans is like red and like the men's guest is green. The logo. Like I was wearing like the, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm wearing the wrong. <laughs> like I had like no idea what, I didn't know anything about fashion. I just like, you know, like, you're like, you're presented with this thing. You're like, oh, this, this person's popular. This is what they're wearing. This will make me look cool. And then it's like, yeah, at that age, it seems that stuff seems so important to you. Well, my mom was really in, there was always like 
fashion magazines around. You know, she always had copies of Vogue around, always had copies of People magazine around. They were always in the bathroom, always in the living room. So I would get sucked into those storylines the same way I would get sucked into G.I. Joe, like, you know, dog tag storylines or whatever, um, but paid attention to that stuff and was similar, like being hyper aware of fashion brands at a young age and paying attention to it and realizing the cost to damn, you know? Yeah. So expensive. And what's crazy (laughs) is we keep talking about your Ross shirt, but like we could have worn that when we're 15. It still looks cool. I mean, like that kind of stuff doesn't go, I'm wearing a descendant shirt. Like it doesn't really go out of style. Right. You know, I hate that I didn't have that knowledge. I think about that a lot. And I, I made a trip to South Florida to visit my mom and my brother last week, actually. So I'd been thinking kind of along these lines about that stuff of like, damn, if I could go over and live it again, you know, being that kid who was like, 13 years old, 12 years old, scared kid, just moved back to the States, going through difficult times. My mom's divorcing, you know, going like financially kind of hard up, like, and me then wanting to adjust and being like, can I have Air Jordans? Can I have body glove stuff? Can you get me these brands? If I would have just been like, hey, you know what? I'll be happy with a pair of black jeans and a pair of Chuck Taylors and some white t-shirts. That'll be fine and I'll look cool. Way cooler than I did wearing whatever goofy ass stuff I was wearing. Yeah, no, you're totally right. You're totally right. But how could you have known? It's like, you know, you're you're trying, you know, everyone's just like trying to be cool and fit in. And that stuff did seem like so cool. Like it just seemed, again, just the level of Jerbo and Jonas. (laughs) (laughs) And is Jerbo still around? I guess you don't hear much about it. I don't know. You don't see it so much. Their thing was like they had that little Jerbo logo like across the fly kind of. I don't know if you guys remember this, like that was right. like, they were like the only, I don't know. I, I don't know why, how I still remember this, but yeah. It reminds me, I, 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 a funny story that me and my friends used to recall for years and years and years after it happened was in those early punk days when I was like 14 years old, smoking weed, young pothead, and me and like four or five of my friends were in my my friend Kim Patrick's box Chevy and we're smoking a joint or whatever. And we had this friend Charles who who liked to wear things like Jerbo and or whatever. And we're smoking a joint and they got to the joint and the cherry fell off and it, and they're like, oh no, my Versace's. And like we all just fucking died laughing at the fact that we're all trying to be so punk and they're wearing Versace's. Yeah, that's like that tough, and I think I went through that that like tough transitional period where you're getting into punk, but you're still like care about this other weird adolescent stuff. And then you just kind of go like full force into the punk thing. And then, yeah. Yeah, but I, I always had those contradictions too, even that like my mom always had Clinique skincare and I would always use her Clinique skin hair all through high school. I had maybe two zits in all my high school experience because I was using clarifying lotion number two, you know, like. Was- <laughs> yes. Yeah, good for you. I wish I'd had that knowledge. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of good lessons we can take away from this, I think. And then, so you were also like, um, around this time where you like getting into like crass and like, you know, like more kind of like Osrotten or more like kind of political punk as well. In thinking back to it, all these things happened in a really short succession of years that at the time seemed like a vast expanse, but it was right. like, you know, fifth grade, move back, parents are divorcing, give up GI Joes. It's no longer cool to play with toys, right? Directly segueing into now I'm into music really heavily and I, I want to get a guitar and I want to, I want to start a band and pursuing that and then starting to wear band shirts shortly after that. But, you know, I got into like MTV was a revelation for me, not having it for uh, elementary school years. Dove headfirst into that, discovered bands like Nirvana, you know, like, um, and then kind of segued into punk from there. But so was into punk by the end of eighth grade, but 
you know, was starting my journey there by the in the sixth grade. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Laura, that's quite a journey. And I, I thank you for sharing that with us. Yes. Thank you. We're going to throw to one more commercial and a message from our dad. Hello, this is the first Todd. Debatable, but not really. And you're listening to How Did We Get Weird with Jonah and Vanessa Bayer. Now, a word from our sponsors. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia and Yellow, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Stadsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. So we're back. Okay, so Laura, now we're going to play a game where we bring up nostalgic things from the past. And if you're into them, you give them a yes-stalgia. Yes-stalgia. And if you're not into them, you give them a no-stalgia. No, 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 no-stalgia. Now, normally we play this with a variety of different products, TV commercials, etc., But because you're such a renowned musician, we thought we would do it specifically with bands that are making a comeback. So here goes this very musical-themed version of No and Yes, Stalgia. Okay, I'm ready. And Vanessa, what's the first one we got today? Okay, so the first musical act that's making a comeback is Natalie Imbruglia. Wow, I'm kind of torn about this one. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's a joke. 
but also it's kind of the accurate feeling towards it. Exactly. I honestly, I only know that song. I only know Torn. Right. So they exist in that one hit wonder kind of capacity for me in that way where I'm like open to it. I'll listen. I'll I'll give it a listen, you know, and I feel like, you know, it might even be more open to being grabbed by it at this age as opposed to being a young, insecure punk. So, yes. So, Laura's open to it. Vanessa, do you have any more info about the Nelly Bruglia comeback? Just that, you know, she's been, I think she's been working on it for a while. She gave us a studio album in the form of 2015's cover album, Mail, um, but hasn't released an original collection since 2009's Come to Life, which I'm not familiar with. I don't know if you two are. And she's partnered with BMG for her upcoming 2021 album, which was originally scheduled for 2020, obviously pandemic stuff. Tim Noberry, head of BMG, noted, Natalie's record has been moved into next year, but rather than stop the recording process, she has set up a studio at home and she's working over technology and successfully making the record. I'm not sure why, (laughs) whatever. I was reading quoted that quote. It seemed like it was going to say something about like how great it is, but it really just talks about lo- the logistics of recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, an- that's thanks, Tim Norberry. Maybe you'd have a little bit more success if you knew how to pump up your musicians. And she's also been working with Albert Hammond Jr. from The Strokes. That's right. That's right. And she shared a song that she co-wrote with Albert. He said something mean about my band one time in Spin Magazine, and I've held a grudge ever since. <gasps> like really? A- Plus, yeah, yeah, I know it was like he he was going through and reviewing whatever the 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 singles were from from at the time and like said something dismissive about it. And I I really like the Strokes, but ever since then I've been like Mm-mm, I like Julian better than you. Um, <laughs> so, of so course, I, this is kind of turning me off to the Natalie Imbruglia stuff. And I got to be honest, I feel like if he was really gonna do her service as a producer, he would say yo, maybe you don't need to be focused on the technical aspects of this stuff right now. If it's taking you a while to get through the album recording process, you need to work with somebody so you can focus on the music and not, not the recording side of it. Totally. I get work on it through the pandemic right now. But this is, this is my honest assessment now. You were honest before, Albert, and now I'm being honest now. Yeah, I always think it's also weird when like people make a big deal about someone like working on their record at home. It's like, yeah, that, that's like what most people do. I'm sure that's what you do all the time, Laura. Like... Yeah, yeah. No, that I I agree. I agree. Vanessa, what are your thoughts on this? Yes, nostalgia, nostalgia? I'm thrilled. As you know, I'm back from our days at Lilith Fair. I'm a huge fan of these kinds of um, female vocalists who really pour their hearts out. And so I can't wait. I can't wait to hear. Maybe she's not torn anymore. Maybe (laughs) now she feels pretty strongly about, you know, whatever. (laughs) Jonah, how how do you feel? I got to give this a nostalgia. I mean, listen, more power to her. Uh, I hope it does well. It just, I can't picture myself sitting down and, and listening to to this album. I just, it's just not my, not really my wheelhouse. What would be the like antonym to Torn? Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking Smashing Pumpkins right now on how like people some sometimes like uh, dismiss like the obvious, you know, or like, and the audacity that the Smashing Pumpkins had with having a song first called Today and then doing a follow-up single of Tonight. Um, right, so, right. I have never thought of that before and I kind of can't believe that. It's so there and obvious that when it does, it was the same for me where I was like, wow. You really did that. So I'm saying, Natalie, you know, like torn, 
what's the opposite? Okay, our producer Doug has just said stop talking about Natalie right now. No, no, he's come okay. in to say that Natalie did not write Torn. Oh, breaking news! Breaking news. Oh, it was a cover. Really? What? Wow. I never knew that. A little known fact. Yeah. From our producers. I think I'm going to be able to go on, but I'm in shock. (laughs) Yeah. It was written by, from this band, Edna Swap. Huh. Is is she Australian? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. It was written in 1983. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so does this change anyone's yes or no nostalgia? I don't know. It shifts me a little more towards nostalgia, but I'm still keeping an open mind, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys remember the video. I mean, she did a lot of her own. She added a lot of her own. I, I imagine the song is very different the way she recorded it. And in the video, she really does seem like she's very torn about things. And I just think she put her whole heart into it. So I still support her. And um, she never claimed to have written it. You know, I think we just assume that. I am leaning more towards no, even though it's already over there, because I have this thing about bands who get successful off a cover song. And for some reason, I always think of Alien Ant Farm, Smooth Criminal. Um, And to me, it just seems like this weird way of like sneaking into like, it seems like lazy or it seems like sort of like gimmicky. And it's it always kind of annoys me for some reason. I'm interested in examining that actually to an extent where what happened, it's similar to the term acoustic. When you say something's acoustic music, there was a definite societal shift where that became a thing where like in the sixties, you didn't say like, Oh, that's Bob Dylan's acoustic album. You know, right. A fucking Bob Dylan album. And similarly back in the day, start of rock and roll historically, like everyone's recording covers and you didn't say it was a cover. It wasn't like, and here's the new Elvis cover, you know, like Elvis didn't write anything. All of his songs were covers. Like they were like, there's, you know, in a lot of like genres, they, they'll say standards, you know, and, and that's another word for covers and covers almost meant to like be demeaning in a weird way that I don't understand what the implications are behind it. And I think it deserves an examination. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, yeah, I think what like Frank Sinatra didn't write. I mean, like, I think all of these. But yeah, there's for me, there's something about recording like a current song. Mm-hmm, or, but mm-hmm. I guess with this one, it's kind of different because I think it's different when you record a song that's already been popular and you re-record it. I mean, I hadn't heard of this original torn. So maybe that is kind of like she just found this deep cut and. Right. So it's sort of like good for her for like finding this thing. Or or look at like Whitney Houston. I will always love you. Like that's that's a jam, you know, or or I watched that Tina Turner documentary not too long ago. And like, you know, the the album that broke her in the 80s, those were covers. But you don't say that's a Tina Turner cover album. Maybe it's like you have to either like have that massive of chart success with it. Or like, I don't know, exist 30, 40 years ago or something. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Sometimes they're also extremely distracting. I, um, I've i been doing brag yoga at home from a prominent <laughs> yoga company. And somehow a lot of the teachers make really, some of them have great music picks, but some of the um, male instructors in particular um, make really odd choices. And when we were in Shavasana, which those of you who are less familiar with yoga it's the final pose where you're just resting this teacher played a cover of boys of summer by don henley and it was this woman just being like after the boys and it was like are we supposed to relax during this this is insane (laughs) (laughs) well and there's also the ataris which covered the boys of summer and that was like their one hit off of a cover yes 
but it, you know, like, I guess I've come to see it from different ways where I've like kind of resigned myself to now to where I'm like, that's probably what's going to happen to me. If I ever have a hit, it's going to be a cover and it's going to blow up and that'll be my biggest song and that'll be my legacy. Um, but then also thinking of like, you know, sometimes maybe that like gives me hope in a weird way where what if someone takes one of my songs that I spent a lot of time right. writing, wasn't a hit, and then years down the right line, they cover it and they have a hit with it. That would be awesome. I'd be open to that as a songwriter. So I'm back on the yes. Stuff. All right. Yeah. And Laura, this is actually crazy, but I actually just had this memory that you do a cover that I didn't realize was a cover until I looked it up. And I can't remember what album it was on, but it was that money changes everything. Which Cindy Lauper played. Which Cindy yeah. Lauper did yeah. to bring it full circle. I didn't I I was like, this is a cool wow. against me song. And then I like looked up the lyrics or something. I was like, I had no idea this was a Cindy Lauper song. Right. But I think maybe that was one of the ones Prince wrote as well. Maybe I'm wrong. Or yeah. But again, Cindy Lauper, another artist who like Prince wrote a lot of her hits. Or, like other people too. Yeah. Okay. Well. So Jonah, where did you end up on this one? You're <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I am anymore. I mean, I, this I was... This is two yes-dolgias and from Jonah, a... Sure, I'll give it a yes-dolgia okay. at this point. I mean, you know, let's let's get on board. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm supportive of this. I got, I got no problem yes, with this. And, yes. and I, have, I have a lot to think about now. Yeah, Jonah, what's next up? What's so, going back? So um, our second one I wanted to talk about was a recent reunion. Um, it was been postponed, but now it is starting back up in September. And uh, it is the... First tour since 2007, of course, I'm talking about Genesis. Laura, what are your thoughts on Genesis? I could give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. I, I don't care about Genesis. I like Peter Gabriel's solo music much better than I like anything of Genesis, uh, regardless of who's singing. And I remember them kind of from this similar era, era, jumping back, like fifth, sixth grade, where they were on the video on MTV with the I Can't Dance video and stuff like that. And... I know some of those videos, like uh, the one that's all the puppets and stuff, like they were cool videos. Land of Confusion, yeah. And they're good songs, whatever, but I just, I don't know, Phil Collins, all that stuff, it is not my jam. That just goes into a place that makes me uncomfortable. Um, Yeah. This is going to be shocking to you then. Jonah, what was your first (laughs) concert? So my first concert ever was, was Phil Collins on the But Seriously tour. Um, 1990. But seriously. So I was like 11. And then, seriously. And then my second concert was Genesis on the Weekend <laughs> Dance Tour. <laughs> no. And my third concert was Guns N' Roses and Skid Row. So you can see uh, there was a real shift there. But yeah, I, for some reason, my first two concerts were, were Phil Collins. And I saw Genesis, I guess, in like the 90s. And I recently read Phil Collins's book, I'm Not Dead Yet. So I have this, I have this weird, <laughs> weird connection with Phil Collins where I like, I I don't know I I'm super into this I n- and I never really got into like the early super like more credible proggy Genesis stuff with Peter Gabriel I'm into like the more like commercial um with like fans for I think is like their worst stuff but I do remember those videos so much they were great videos yeah do you remember the the, the, the I can't dance video where he's like playing pool and he like loses his je- like his jeans and he like loses them and like they're play- like he just has to like bet all his clothes like. There's sort of like, I like the fact that like, it's so self-deprecating. So obviously like, yeah, I'm this like middle-aged guy, but like my videos on MTV all the time. I mean, it's so, it would never happen now. I get it. I, and the songs, again, I understand they're good songs. I understand like, 
I can hear it coming in the whatever oh, the such drum a good solo. Song. Totally. Classic moments, you know, like I fully understand it. It's just something that I have never been able to embrace and really don't care to at this point. Vanessa, what are your thoughts on on the Genesis reunion tour? Well, I am I am kind of a Phil Collins fan and I I always really like Genesis. I mean, I'm kind of excited for it. I don't know that I'll be, you know, go into the shows, although Jonah, if you if you come in town and you want to go to a show together, I'm happy to. I, I I think I'm nostalgia for it. I I it is so funny that the two of you, I'm sure your musical tastes align in a lot of ways, but that this is one way in which strong opposites. I mean, Jonah, I assume you're excited for this, although I don't want to make an assumption. Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it's cool. Would I actually pay to buy tickets and drive to go see it? Like, no, no way. Like, um, like I like it in theory. I like talking about it, but I, but, but I think there's almost no band that I would, I would do that for at this point. I live like hours away from any sort of like big venues. And for me, it's just, yeah, but I like the idea of it, but I, not enough to like, commit. Would you jump in your car and drive across the state if Phil Collins needed you to rewrite a speech? <laughs> yes. Yes. If I could talk to Phil Collins okay. about 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 anything, yeah, I would do it. If, if I could rewrite a speech, for sure. For sure. That's a good question. Good. That's a really good question. Yeah, if I could have... To, yeah, you know what's so weird? I was like, I bought his biography. Or no, I didn't get it. I think I got from a publicist or something. And I remember taking the dust jacket off of when I got it because I was like, if I meet Phil Collins, I probably want this to be nice in case he signs it. Which is such a weird thing <laughs> to think I'm going to meet him and have this book jacket with me. <laughs> I'd have been a premonition, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's funny is I let someone borrow the book and I still have the jacket. I think I've been like carrying around this jacket for all these moves, um, just waiting to, to get it signed by Phil. Not to yeah. talk smack or anything, but that title just screams insecurity. What is it? <laughs> I'm, I'm not dead yet. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> come on is that a pun on one of his no I, I don't know i think it's just him kind of being self-deprecating that's kind of his whole vibe yeah right 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 from the bears we got nostalgias. from laura we have a nostalgia and so that's where we stand on that one fair enough okay final final uh final comeback the black crows <laughs> They're on tour now. They're on tour now. They're and they're gonna release a film of it. Laura, what do you think? I'm gonna say yes, nostalgia to the Black Crows. I'm into it. I support the Black Crows. But okay, so here this is odd actually because Black Crows have come up in my life. Uh, this is now the fourth time in a succession of months. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the artist Cher Strawberry. She's incredible. Uh, like awesome skateboarder uh, and then punk musician from the Bay Area. Should have been on Lookout Records if Lookout Records was still a thing, historical punk label, right? Her record came out maybe a month or so or something like that. I got to write the bio for it, which was really cool. It came out on the Black Crows record label. She could not sound more different than anything that the Black Crows have ever put out. And I'm, from my understanding, they haven't put out anything else really other than their own music other than this random transgender skater punk from the Bay Area, Cher Strawberry. So that that like completely flipped my perception of, of Black Crows in a way. But I remember really being into Shake Your Money Maker when I was like sixth, seventh grade. I thought their style was cool. Um, and I think they have like that timeless style where if they would have, that, 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 that it can exist. Like they could have just stuck with it. They wouldn't have had to go through the breakups or the drama. Maybe there's the dips and the valleys and stuff like that in the career or whatever, but it's always going to come back. It looks cool. Sounds cool. It's rock and roll. <laughs> I, I'm going to give this a nostalgia. And to me, it's just, 
I, yeah, I don't know if you followed like their drummer, Drucker's drummer wrote this biography. I believe his name is Steve Gorman. It came out recently. Yeah. I haven't read it, but I read a lot about it. Um, and it basically sounds like this is obviously they're doing this for the money. It's like, but it's like they didn't ask the rest of the band to do the reunion. It's just uh, Chris and Rich Robinson. And to me, it just seems like, I don't know, they, these people don't seem to like each other. Like they didn't ask the rest of the band to participate. It's kind of capitalizing on this thing. Like, I, yeah, if people want to go see it. That's fine. Like I've watched some live videos. Like it sounds, the songs sound good. But to me, to me, if you're going to get the band back together, like, like make it a band thing. Don't just like cut everyone else out of it. You know, it's, it's a Black Crows, you know, not the, not the, not the Robinsons. But, but it does cut deeper because there is that sibling element to it, in my opinion, that that has a, a unique dynamic if you're going to be in a band with siblings where there's always going to be some kind of off power balance because there's whatever that's history true. that's there. And really like, let's be honest when it comes down to it, any band that's been a band for more than like a decade or anything like that, they all hate <laughs> each other anyways. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's just no, you're right. You're totally right. And this just came up. No, not as too much of a, a non sequitur, but I just read um, this book run with the devil, which is like the Van Halen story. And it's like Eddie and Alex Van Halen had, you know, had this whole kind of like, the dynamic of the band so it's like you're you're right about that but i don't know to something so for some reason this just feels doesn't feel like they're in it for the right reasons to me just to me personally not knowing anyone not really ever listening to this band <laughs> for the last 20 years not having any skin in the game to me it's it's uh just doesn't feel right vanessa what about you well i just want to note that the black crows song hard to handle their first success song our producer Doug just told us was a cover. Hard to handle. That's the one I yeah. was saying. Not yeah, yeah. The album is Shake Your Money Maker. Yeah. Oh, got it. Okay, so they, so so, you know, they recovered from that, and I want to give them props. Yeah, for that. that's true. But I don't, I don't have strong feelings about it. You know, this stuff about their touring with maybe not everybody is, you know, it it, it does inform my decision. However. You know, let's see, let's see what they do. You know, obviously none of us will go in person and go see what they do. But like, let's I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give this a yes, Dalja. So I think this is, again, Jonah's been kind of like the <laughs> hater of this. Of well, this you're the music of this critic, game. I guess. I'm, I'm just, yeah. This is too. Yeah. Yeah. This that's fair. Two yes, Dalja's and a no. Yeah. But I probably actually like read more and, and like listened more to the Black Crows the last year than I have in my life. So maybe, I don't know, maybe there's just something about it that threatens me. I don't know what it is. When you think about it, the Black Crows were kind of like the first version of that band Jet, you know, where Jet, you're like, oh, I like this song. Right. Clearly this song is Lust for Life, you know, and their look is like clearly that look that's that classic look. They were kind of like the first version where they were like, we'll just do what the Rolling Stones did. Exactly. We'll just like right. look like yeah. that. Thing and I, you know, trash talk me all you want too. Or is like I did that with punk of just like well, that's what the older punks are wearing. This is what I wear because I'm punk, right? You know, um, but yeah, but I feel like that? what you did, did, what you've done, Laura, has always been like kind of like not not contrived or not like not so like I feel like you would all get up there, you'd wear black, and it was more about the songs. Like, and to me, that's what what I connect with. I feel like when you know, and then maybe that's something that bugs. Like, I feel like when bands are so conscious of like their image and like this whole thing that seems constructed to me, it's always sort of seems like sometimes the music can be secondary. I'm not saying that's just the black crows, but just in general. I get that. And I also think that there's a, a difference between bands that I don't necessarily understand because I can't fully do it of like bands that are known for their live shows because they jam, right. you know, like in that great 
dead way where you don't know what's going to happen. They're just going to start playing and someone is going to, they're going to start trading solos and magic happens. You know, like, I don't know how to do that. And I don't understand necessarily how to enjoy it live either. But I, I, I respect that other people do. So maybe it's not yeah. my thing. Yeah, that's fair. Very cool. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been so great. Obviously, people can check out your solo album, Stay Alive, but where are there are there some other ways people can check you out online, in, in the news, in the thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm very active on social media. I, I use Twitter like text messaging. And um, I also wrote a memoir in 2016. So if you want to know way too much about me, that book is available. Yes. But I'm out there, you know. Great. Thank you for sharing your stories. And yeah, um, yeah. if you haven't listened to Laura's music, um, it's amazing. You should definitely check it out. Yes. And thank you to Laura and for everyone for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast. Keep an eye out for next week's episode of How Did We Get Weird? Where we will discuss more stories from our childhood and cultural touchstones like G.I. Joe. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 